Behold, I come quickly with that. He knocked the pulpit off the platform and he fell over, landed on the laps of these two ladies and knocked them off the pew onto the floor. He was embarrassed to death. He said, man, they'll never have me now. And uh, he said, ma'am, I'm so sorry. She said, that's okay, sonny. You warned us three times you were coming. We should have had... <laughs> We should have had sense enough to get out of the way. <laughs> this pulpit could, could wind up there. <laughs> How many of you have ever heard of the song, "He uh, Sunshine in My Soul Today? Beulah Land. Uh, Take the world but give me Jesus. My Savior first of all. Will there be any stars in my crown? And on and on and on goes the list. Those songs were written by my former neighbor. John R. Sweeney, who died in 1899. You see, how was he your neighbor if he died in 1899? Well, he was buried in the cemetery that was right next to the house where we lived for 28 years. So when people would come to visit, I'd take him over to the cemetery to show them his grave and some other graves there. Uh, John Sweeney was born in 1860. And uh, anyway, he died at the age of 62. At the age of 50, he started writing gospel tunes. He never wrote lyrics that I'm aware of, but he wrote music for more than a 1,000 gospel songs for Fanny Crosby and a bunch of others, and a very popular song leader in Bible conferences all across the East Coast. During the Civil War, he directed a band that played for President Lincoln in 1885. His band was invited to perform for the inaugural ceremonies in Washington for Grover Cleveland. He also performed for President Rutherford B. Hayes. Uh, back there is a small biography of him. It took me five years' research to putting a little less than a 100-page book together. We ran into some snags, but have some interesting photos and things. <coughs> and uh, I also have a small anthology of 25 of his 1,000 songs. I have personally in my collection, I've collected and photocopied 664 of them. <coughs> so I don't have anywhere near all the songs that he wrote. Very, very prolific songwriter. And you will enjoy reading about that. Some of his ancestors on his wife's side and his side. Just absolutely incredible, incredible people. Yes, sir. It's in, it's in my pocket. It says SP. What button? Oh, this one? What's supposed to happen? No lights come on. Oh, there's the green light. That means go, right? I'm still from the era when you had microphones that you had to hold and had these cords to drag around like on The Price is Right. <laughs> oh, dear. Well, we'll get this together by Wednesday, I'm sure. Anyway, I have copies of this back there. Some other biographies I've written. I have some new CDs, a lot of new music, <coughs> printed music. I would also encourage <coughs> you musicians to jot down the website, sacredsheetmusic.com. Uh, that's out of Greenville, South Carolina. I have 93 arrangements on there, and there are over 2,000 other arrangements on there as well. Uh, I have violin, cello, trumpet, flute, piano, organ, brass, ensemble, etc. So you can check all that out. Take your Bibles, if you will, please, because I know we're pressed for time this morning. And turn with me to Psalm 23. Psalm 23. This psalm is probably the most familiar portion of Scripture to more people than perhaps any other. It is not uncommon. In fact, I asked a funeral director friend of mine. He used to call me Dr. Lynch. So 
And I'm not even a nurse, so I called him Digger O'Dell, you know, for the friendly undertaker. My mom used to tell me about him from Vaudeville days. But uh, when you go to a funeral home, often you get a little card like this with the name of the deceased with the date of birth and death. And on the back, about, I was told by this funeral director, about 90% of the time is a reproduction of the 23rd Psalm. Interesting how people will turn to the Bible in a time of grief, but no other time. And even, to, even then, for the majority of those people, this 23rd Psalm is just like a little poem written by a shepherd boy you know, a few thousand years ago. We recognize it as part of the inspired, infallible, authoritative Word of God. Psalm 23, by the way, was not written by David. It was written by the Holy Spirit and given to us through David. I want to read these verses this morning. In fact, let's read them all together, all six verses. And then I want to focus our attention on primarily verse 4. Would you join me as we read Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. (laughs) He maketh me... He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Father, I pray that as we look at this one verse of this wonderful passage, that your Holy Spirit will impress upon us those truths that we need to learn. Father, there may be some folks here today who've never met the Savior. And I pray that if that is the case, that today will be that day when they come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. Challenge and bless and encourage the hearts of your people as well. And may through it all the Lord Jesus Christ alone be uplifted and glorified, for he alone is worthy. And it's in his name that we pray and seek your blessing. Amen. I want to divide the verse into two major parts. First of all, the idea of facing death personally and then following the divine plan for our life. Notice facing death personally. David says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Thank you. 27 glasses of water and I need another one. (laughs) Thank you. Let me read that part again and add a word or two for clarification only. David says, Yea, though I too must walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Observe with me then the sentence of death. David recognizes that all who have lived before him have lived and died. In fact, in Genesis chapter 5, you find the the world's first obituary page. It lists the names of Adam and all the others that followed him down to Methuselah. And it ends with these words, and he died again and again and again. With one exception, who might that be? Enoch. There are two people in the Old Testament who did not die. Enoch and Elijah, who was taken up in a whirlwind. Um, The universal sentence of death, folks, is in fact universal. There are some Bible expositors who believe that the two witnesses of the Revelation will be Enoch and Elijah. There are others who disagree with that. Uh, I'm not going to split hairs on that. We'll leave that to the scholars. 
But the fact is that other than those two individuals, and there's, by the way, a whole generation who does not have an appointment with death, there is no universal sentence for them, and that's the people who are alive, God's people, at the time the rapture takes place. Other than that, folks, all the world is under the universal sentence of death. The Bible says, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so then death passed upon all men, because all have sinned. It is also a universal appointment. It is appointed unto man once to die. Now, there are some appointments you may be late for. You may even cancel. Uh, you, you may ignore them. But, folks, listen, there's one appointment that you'll keep on time. It matters not who you are or where you are or what you're doing or how important your business is. And that is your appointment with the angel of death. It is appointed unto man once to die. That ought to, that ought to forever settle the issue of reincarnation. The false teaching that there are many births and many deaths and many lives. There is one physical birth. There is one spiritual birth. If you've been born only once, you will die twice, physically and spiritually. But if you've been born twice, physically and spiritually, you'll only die once, physically, and maybe not even then, if we're in that generation that the Lord takes home to heaven. A universal appointment. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. As we go through this verse, I, I, I'm going to emphasize this morning something I do not normally do, but I want to emphasize almost as much what David does not say as what he does say. Notice David does not say, Yea, though I walk through the valley of death. He does say, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. So we've noted the sentence of death. Notice next then the shadow of death. Now those shadows may bring some semblance of darkness, They are nothing more than shadows, and they are totally, completely harmless. I remember one of my early trips to Arizona. I was ministering in a church that was ministering to the Tano Autumn Indian Reservations west of Tucson. And I'm just a dumb Easterner. What do I know about the desert? I know they have a lot of cacti. I know they have sidewinders. I know they have those cute little uh, jumpy round bunnies. What do they call those things? The, The little mice. Anyway, you know, the little mice have long tails, and I, I, I never knew how much wildlife, I mean, big wildlife, deer and, and, uh, and wolves and fox and coyotes and mountain lions called cougars or puma, a lot of big stuff out there. One day after chapel, I had the rest of the day off, so I thought, I'm going to take a stroll through the desert. I, just being a dumb Eastern, what did I, I didn't even take a bottle of water with me. I did, I did wear a hat to keep the sun off my head. And uh, so I, I, I suppose I was walking through the desert maybe about 45 minutes when I came within six feet. And I am not exaggerating, not one, but two mountain lions. Now that could have been frightening except for that piece of two-inch thick glass that separated those lions from me in the Sonora Desert Museum. You were enjoying that stroll too, weren't you? Now, the Sonora Desert Museum, if you've not been there, is not like any other museum. It is outside. You are actually in the desert walking along, and, but they do have these enclosures to protect the wildlife from humans. And so I got within six feet of these two gorgeous mountain lions. Now, if I had been outside of that museum, say in the foothills around Tucson, and my shadow's cast out in front of me, and I see a shadow of a mountain lion creeping up, and my shadow quickens its pace, and the mountain lion quickens its pace. 
For what do I flee? Not the shadow. Folks, the shadow of the most vicious animal in the world is harmless. It can't hurt you. We run from what it represents. Interesting, David does not here say, I walk through the valley of death. He says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Shadows, by the way, shadows, the darker the shadow, the brighter the light behind it. And the Bible teaches us that Jesus is the light of the world. The Bible also teaches us that the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Three times during Job's uh, life-threatening illness, he said, On my eyelids is the shadow of death. As shadows are harmless, so for the child of God, death likewise is also harmless. Notice also in our text, it is spoken of as a valley. I've heard some preachers say that this is a dark, dismal valley of despair and discouragement. Not so, my friend. The word in the Hebrew that is translated valley in our English Bible is a word that literally means the place where waters flow together. It's actually representing something of what we would today call an oasis. In a desert, my friend, an oasis is a welcome sight. It's a place of coolness. It's a place of refreshment. It's a place of relaxation. And so is the valley of the shadow of death for the child of God. It is simply the place where we meet the Lord and together we walk into heaven. But I should also remind you about the sting of death. In 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty six, the Bible says that the sting of death is sin. Sin, my friend, is the cause of death. God told Adam and Eve, the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Now the agnostic says, ah, he didn't die. The Bible's not true. What do you mean he didn't die? Well, he lived 930 years. How do you know he lived 930 years? Well, the Bible tells us that. Now, wait a minute. You're going to trust the Bible on one thing, but not the other? You can't take Genesis 5 to disprove Genesis 3. You either take the Bible lock, stock, and barrel, or you reject it lock, stock, and barrel. You don't have any right to pick and choose, as Thomas Jefferson did, and a wicked, ungodly man. I don't know what you think of Thomas Jefferson, but I never would have voted for him. I'd have voted for John Adams any day, but that's I wasn't there to vote. So, uh, But Thomas Jefferson put together what he called the Jefferson Bible. You know what he did? He was an agnostic. He basically, he was a, a deist type fella. And he took the parts of the New Testament that basically he thought were the most important and left out the unimportant stuff. Listen, my friend, there's nothing in our Bible that's unimportant. Except for maybe the concordance. We could live without a concordance, although it sure is a convenient tool to have. Who does Thomas Jefferson think he is to decide what's important for us? And to tell God, Lord, what, what you wrote here, that's not important. And by the way, the Jefferson Bible ends at the cross. There's no resurrection. Read 1 Corinthians 15. If there's no resurrection, my dear friend, there's no hope. The Jefferson Bible leaves a man condemned in sin without any hope of redemption whatsoever. And so the sting of death, the Lord Jesus bore our sin in his own body on the tree. Why is there such a difference in the way people die? I mean, you, you talked to some people... About death, and they're scared, I don't mean this to be cute, but they're scared to death of death. They're terrified of dying. I remember visiting one old lady, she was 99. I started visiting her when she was 97. I had the privilege of visiting her for two years at a county nursing home. <clears throat> she was almost, <clears throat> almost legally blind. Her body was old and worn out. Just a little itty bitty thing, probably weighed 90 pounds. And, uh, but boy, her mind was as sharp as a tack. I had, 
I'd go to there to be a blessing, but her blesser was bigger than mine. I always got the blessing. And one day as I was ready to leave, she grabbed me by the hand. She said, oh, Pastor Lynch. She said, I just want to go home with that longing in her voice. And nurse overheard the conversation. She took me aside when I left the room. She said, Reverend Lynch, I hate that term. Reverend Lynch, she, she said, she doesn't understand. She can't go home. I said, no, ma'am, you don't understand. She's not talking about going back to her house on Maple Avenue. She's talking about going home to be with her Lord. Is that not what you and I ought to look forward to? Being with the Lord? Why is it that some people look forward to death? I just got an email this past week from an 85-year-old retired pastor in Florida who's battling a serious case of skin cancer and other problems. And and, and his wife said, oh, we're just, we're, we're, we're praying for the shout. Well, they may not hear the shout, but they'll hear the call if the shout delays. God's people look forward to death does not scare us. The Bible says precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. But for the unbeliever lost in his sin, you have every reason to be terrified because the Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. What makes the difference in the way people face death? For the child of God, it's like having a, a, a wasp whose stinger has been removed. It still looks ugly, it still sounds ugly, and you still wonder, is that the one I took the stinger out of, or is that his first cousin come for a visit? All it can do is startle you, but it can't hurt you. A wasp without a sting, stinger is harmless. Death is like a wasp whose stinger has been removed. But my friend, for the unbeliever, the sting is still there. (coughs) Excuse me. Don't mind me, I'm going to live until I die. (coughs) Unless the Lord comes first. All right, notice number two, following the divine plan. I've been struggling the last couple of weeks with my voice. I don't know if it's the West Coast, (coughs) whatever it is we've been near. Anyway, following the divine plan. Notice what David does not hear say. He does not say, yea, though I run through the valley. The idea there of being being chased or, or in a competition. He does not say, yea, though I skip. The idea of being happy, carefree, happy-go-lucky, you know. He says, yea, though I walk through that valley. <clears throat> a walk is a deliberate action of moving from one place to another. In this case, moving from the realm of time <coughs> into the realm of eternity. It also suggests a persevering walk. Notice it's also not a lingering walk. Notice what David does not say. And this is very important. David does not say, Yea, though I walk into the valley of the shadow of death. He does not say, Yea, though I walk in the valley of the shadow of death. The use of either one of those words would suggest that once I'm in there, I have no idea when or if I'm ever going to get out. Several years ago, my wife and I were on the Eastern Maritimes of Canada. We spent a week on PEI. We were in between meetings. And there's a famous garden there that, in addition to all the beautiful flowers and landscaping, has about 50 or so, they may have more than that now, uh, miniatures of great sites in Europe. They have a miniature Eiffel Tower, a miniature Tower of London. Some of them are actually buildings big enough you can walk into, and they have displays of antiques and that sort of thing. But as you entered the the gardens, off to the right was a large hedgerow, probably as tall as 
where the top of the, the ceiling meets the wall here, and probably two, maybe three times the size of your auditorium, and it was a human maze. I've always been fascinated by those things. Uh, you know, when you go to the restaurant and the kids get in, I always go through the kids' things, you know, and do the, do the mazes and the word things. Just an overgrown kid. And so I told my wife, well, let's, let's go, let's go in, there. let's spend a few minutes there. She said, honey, please, let's not do that. I said, oh, we won't spend long in there. <clears throat> she said, honey, we came to see the flowers. Let's not do that. When will we husbands learn to listen to our wives? <laughs> so my wife, being the submissive, obedient wife, followed me into this chamber of death. <laughs> we saw a young couple coming out. They were both tall, very skinny. We have no idea how many, how long they've been in there. But they were very emaciated looking. I thought, I've got a good sense of direction. I can't get lost in here. Baloney. That's the Greek word. You go in there, you turn left, you turn right, and the computer, your, your internal GSP shuts down. <clears throat> and I don't know how long we were in there. Longer than I wanted to be. Longer than I planned to be. And far longer than my wife wanted to be in there. And I didn't dare tell her how nervous I was beginning to get. I mean, nobody knows we're even in there. Nobody knows where we are. We're in between meetings. We're not scheduled to be someplace for almost a week. Within a week's time, we could have died. Our bodies half decayed in that place, you know. And finally, we got on the outside edge. You say, how do you know it was the outside? Well, because I could see through it. Uh, how could you see through it? Well, there were some broken branches, and I wonder how that might have happened. So I told my wife, I said, honey... Everybody else is doing it, so I broke through the side of the hedge, tore my shirt, cut myself, blood, pain, suffering, but I was out of there. And all she had to do was step through the hole I had made, and I pushed the bush up, hoped nobody saw me, and we were out of there. Folks, listen, this word does not suggest we're going to get into this valley and linger, uh, linger for an undetermined period of time. <coughs> Notice what David says victoriously, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. <clears throat> confident of reaching the other side. Notice it's not a fearful walk. He says, I will fear no evil. Death is a defeated foe. John Donne, the English poet, wrote a poem called Death Be Not Proud, though some have called thee so. And, and the poem ends, I, I used to have it memorized, but I've forgotten it now, don't have a copy, but it ends with the words, Death, thou shalt die. That poem has good biblical sound theology. Let me share with you a statement written by Dr. Martin Day in 1660. And you find this in Spurgeon's commentary on, on his treasury of David, page 414. Commenting on the phrase, I will fear no evil, Dr. Day writes this. It has been an ancient proverb that when a man had done some great matter, he was said to have plucked a lion by the beard. Can you imagine? That's either crazy or stupid. As when a lion is dead, in even little boys, it is an easy matter. As boys, when they see a bear, a lion, or a wolf dead in the streets, they will pull off their hair, insult them, and deal with them as they please. They will trample upon their bodies and do that unto them being dead, which they would never in the least measure venture upon while they were alive. There's the picture of death, my friend. It's a dead animal. It can't hurt you. It's harmless. All it is is the quiet escort into the presence of God. Notice it's not a lonely walk. For thou art with me. In Hebrews 13.5 we find this statement. I will never 
leave thee nor forsake thee. Did you get that? And I think one of the emphasis, emphasized words here is, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Have you ever lost the presence of God? No. He said, I have no. If you're saved, you've ne- you never lose the presence of God. What you lose is the sense of God's presence because you become consumed with yourself rather than being consumed with him. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Notice also the rod and the staff. They are not taken singularly. They are taken together. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. The rod speaks of discipline. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourges every son whom he receives. Hebrews says, if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are you illegitimate and not even sons at all. Listen, God spanks his children, but he doesn't spank the devil's kids. If you've never been taken to the spiritual woodshed by your heavenly father, you need to question whether in fact, whether or not he is in fact your heavenly father. My dad and mom would discipline me, but they never disciplined the neighbor's kids. My neighbor's dad, he, man, he'd, he'd whip him, but he'd never whip me. Why? He didn't have, there was no, there was no relationship that gave him the authority to do so. If you're a child of God, you're going to be disciplined from time to time. If you're a child of the devil, God's going to leave you alone pretty much up to your own stuff. But the devil will ultimately bring you ruin in the everlasting fires of an eternal hell. The rod speaks of this one. There are, there are a few things we need desperately back in public schools. And until we get them back there, we can't expect them to improve. One of them is the Bible. Number two, prayer. Number three, of equal importance, the paddle. Can't spank kids in school anymore. No wonder we got a bunch of, of ruffians out there. I remember junior high school, junior high school, mind you. Not elementary, junior high school. I got paddled in front of the whole school over this state-of-the-art uh, a PA system where Mr. Joseph flipped the switch and the whole school heard me and my buddy. We got into a friendly argument, a friendly fight. That's what Irishmen do. They have friendly fights. And Lynch is the fifth most common Irish name. And he paddled us, so the whole school heard us getting paddled. It took us ten minutes to get back to class. We were laughing so hard. Listen, folks, paddling, discipline. Can't tell a kid no till all of a sudden he gets in a car and drives 85 miles an hour in a 15-mile zone. The cop says, you can't do that. Who says so? The law says so. We are becoming a lawless society, folks. And it has nothing to do with the laws. It has to do with the homes the government officials, the public schools, which are, which are in pathetic shape today, especially with this new ruling that you, about the transgender bathrooms. And I was delighted to hear that there are at least six states now who are fighting. I say, listen, you have no, that's the Tenth Amendment. You have no say in what we do as a state. Take your money. Keep it. And one, one governor said, that, oh, you're, all you're going to do is you're going to take money away and we won't provide lunches and hot meals and lunches for the kids. You're just going to make the kids hungry because we're going we're gonna to spend the money other ways. Time the states told the federal government, listen, you mind your business, we'll mind ours. We'll pay for our own roads. But I'm not running for office, so please don't write me in. <clears throat> we have no discipline at the highest offices of the land. We have no discipline in Congress. We have no discipline in our schools. We have no discipline in our homes. And we wonder why our country is going to the dogs. 
The staff speaks of protection. With the staff, the shepherd could reach into a bush and pull a little lamb that had tumbled off the cliff into safety. Both together, the, 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 the rod of discipline, the staff of protection show the love of God for his children. They comfort me. You know, a child, a little child needs to know what the boundaries are. I was just recently in February in Puerto Rico, and, and they have a German shepherd dog there that they're training. And they dug one of those electronic fences, you know, put that on the ground. Man, that dog will go so far, and he just won't go any further. He's learned what the boundaries are. And he knows if he crosses the boundary, it's going to hurt. If he stays within the boundary, he can be as happy as a German shepherd can be. Listen, our kids need to know what the parameters are. We need to set guidelines. We need to set boundaries. And when they cross the boundary, there's a price to pay. problem is there are no boundaries anymore. And a kid doesn't know where he's safe and where he's not safe. Both show the love of God for his children. Notice all the comfort of verse 4. They comfort me. Hinges on one word in two words in verse 1. Where David there said, the Lord is my shepherd. Notice again what he did not say. He did not say the Lord's his shepherd or her shepherd or your shepherd. He said, nay, the Lord is my shepherd. Like Thomas of old, my Lord and my God. Mary Magdalene told Peter and John, they've taken away the Lord. She told Jesus, thinking he was the gardener, they've taken away my Lord. The difference in heaven and hell is, is whether or not he is simply to you the Lord or whether he is your Lord personally. And then he says, the Lord is. Not the Lord wants to be, not the Lord can be, not the Lord will be, but the Lord is right now. God is my shepherd. Therefore, I enjoy his provision, verses 1 to 3. His presence, verses 4 and 6. His protection, verses 4 and 5. And his peace, in verse 6. Now, in John 10, we have the New Testament counterpart about the Lord Jesus. In John chapter 10, verse 7, he is the door of the sheepfold. In verses 9 to 11, he is there described as the door of salvation. I am the door by me. If any man enter in, he shall be saved. But in verses 28 to 30, he is the door of security. I give unto them eternal life, and no man can pluck them out of my Father's hand. It's, you know, in one verse he says, my hand. Then he says, my Father's hand. It's like deadbolt security. He tucks you in his sovereign hand, and God the Father puts his hand around the Son's hand. Say, well, the devil can't get me, but I could jump out. You think you're stronger than God? Why would you want to lose your salvation? Why would you want to jump out of his hand under the fires of hell? People who believe you can lose your salvation just don't understand simple Bible teaching. We're children of God. The day you can stop being the son or daughter of your biological parents is the day you can stop being a child of God. That will never happen. So he, he, is the, he is the door of our security. Many years ago, there was a famous actor in England, Europe, who would travel about giving one man readings of, from the great literature of Shakespeare and others. And every evening, he would end his program with a dramatic reading of the 23rd Psalm. And when he finished, there would usually be thunderous applause and whistles and standing ovations. An appreciation for the way he had of bringing that passage of Scripture to life. One evening, as he was about to conclude his presentation, 
A young man in the audience stood up and said, Sir, may I please repeat Psalm 23 tonight instead? The actor was taken quite back by surprise, thinking, Who is this upstart? You know, he doesn't, I don't know anything about him, and I'm, I'm a famous actor. But he's thinking, He'll make me even look better. So he gave his permission for this young man to come up and recite Psalm 23. The young man came up on the stage, looked at the audience, and quietly began to recite the words, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And when he was done, there was no applause, no whistles, no cheering, no standing ovation. The only sounds you could hear were people sniffling. And as you looked, people were wiping the tears from their eyes. The actor approached the young man. He said, young man, I have been had the finest training that one can get. I have had years of experience. He said, son, never in my life have I ever been able to move an audience as you have tonight. He said, young man, what is your secret? You know what he said? Sir, you know the psalm, but I know the shepherd. And folks, that's what makes the difference. Do you know the shepherd today? Is he your shepherd? He will be if you'll ask him to. Let's bow together as we pray. Every head bowed, please. Every eye closed. I wonder this morning if you know the shepherd or if you just know about him. We know the psalm, but do you know the one about whom the psalm was written? Are you saved? Do you know it? And do you have a Bible reason on which to base it? I wonder if there's anyone here say, Preacher, God spoke to my heart this morning. I'm not sure that I'm saved. If I died today in a car wreck on the way home or dropped dead of a heart attack, I do not know whether I would go to heaven or hell. God knows I'm a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. I don't want to die and go to hell. I want to be saved. I want to ask you to pray for me. If that's the desire of your heart, would you let me know right now by just slipping up your hand? Preacher, please pray for me. I'm not sure of heaven. Not sure that I'm saved, but I would like to be. Anyone like that here this morning? Father, we thank you for your word and ask now that you'll cause it to bear fruit in the hearts of these who've listened. May it be a blessing and a time of encouragement for those who are saved, perhaps most, if not everyone, here this morning. But, Lord, perchance there is one who has not responded. I pray that the Spirit of God would so move in their heart and life that they would be miserable until they come to the one who is peace, even the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray and ask your blessing. Amen. Pastor. Amen. How many have heard the play first song before? Amen. Isn't it amazing?